Hello and welcome to a Flatpak History of Sweden, the only chronological Swedish history podcast in English. Quite specific there. <laughs> we've been going through Swedish history starting from when the first humans arrived in this country and we've now reached the late 1200s. I am Chris, one of your two hosts. And I'm Elsa, your other host. Today's episode will continue from where we left it last time. And today we will cover the reign of King Magnus III, Birger Jarl's second son. So if you haven't listened to our episode that came out two weeks ago, that was all about Birger Jarl's first son and Magnus's brother, King Valdemar, we suggest you do that before listening to the rest of this episode. There are also three episodes about Birger Jarl himself. Uh, those are episodes 38, 39 and 40 that are good to listen to to get the background to what led to Magnus's reign. Exactly. And before we go any further with this episode, we've got to cover our Swedish phrase of the week. Indeed, this week's phrase is Man ska inte ropa hej förrän man kommit över bäcken. So in English, that's you should not shout hello until you are over the brook or over the stream. Okay, well, I understand what it means literally, but it doesn't really make sense as a phrase. Can you tell us about what it actually means? Yeah, it is a bit of a weird phrase, this one. It means that you should not take anything for granted or announce anything before you're certain. So don't celebrate having crossed the stream by shouting hello until you are actually over the stream, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess in English we might say, or we do say, you don't count your chickens before they hatch, which means that this phrase is very similar to a Swedish phrase we did a few weeks ago about not selling the hide before you shoot the bear. True, those two phrases are used to mean the same thing. It seems like Swedes are quite preoccupied by not taking things for granted, since we have two phrases that mean more or less that. Uh, we're a careful people, maybe, I don't know. But someone who finally got what he wanted and could celebrate uh, with a big party was Birger Jarl's second son, Magnus, because he's now king. He's now Magnus III, and he's the one we're going to dedicate today's episode to. We're going to backtrack a little bit first, like we usually do when we meet a new king, and briefly go through what happened in his life before he became king. Since we covered a lot of what happened during the reign of his brother in our last episode, we're not going to go through it in all that detail again. We're just going to give a super short, quick summary of what Magnus did before he became the king. And like most people we know, Magnus's life starts with him being born. Yeah, that is a relatively common way to start life, I'd say, for most of us. We're born. Exactly, and Magnus is no exception to that. And he's also no exception to the fact that when it comes to people from this time period, we don't really know exactly when he was born. No, that is very common. Uh, similarly, we didn't know when his dad was born or when Valdemar was born. It seems like they weren't that preoccupied with birthdays in Sweden during the Middle Ages. Uh, at least they didn't seem to bother to write down when someone was born. Yeah, even kings and, and yeah. people like that, there's not too many people, because obviously a lot of these people, certainly Magnus, you didn't know he was going to be king when he was born, but he was at least the son of a very powerful person, so 
Oh, well, it just gives uh, more debate and more things for historians to look into. And that is something that historians have looked into because some have deduced based on the events that happened in his life and what was happening in his dad's life at the time when he was probably born is that he was probably born around 1240, the year, not the time. <laughs> or maybe he was born at 1240 in 1240. We don't know. Yes, exactly. But no real indication of what month, though. His parents were, like as we already mentioned, Begal and his wife Ingeborg. When he's born, his parents already had two children, his older sister Rakissa and his older brother Valdemar. And he'll eventually get two more brothers and three more sisters, so it's a big family. At the time of his birth, his father is already the Jarl of Sweden and he'll eventually rename this title the Duke of Sweden. And his mother is the sister of then King Eric the Eleventh. And like we saw, thanks to some careful manoeuvring, his family takes the throne as Birgal secures the power for his own family and makes his oldest son, Valdemar, king when Eric XI dies. Valdemar and Magnus are only kids when this happened, and the country is effectively ruled by their father, Birgal, for the rest of the time that Birgal is on Earth. This must have been a bit strange for Magnus, having his older brother suddenly crowned king, despite their father being king in all but name for many years before this happening. Indeed. Other than these things about his family, we really don't know much about Magnus's childhood, or indeed his life prior to 1270, so when he's about 30 years old. Some sources suggest that he might have had some military training, perhaps even have been a knight, but we don't know for sure. At the very least, he was probably a better military leader than his brother Valdemar, which became evident when Magnus and their other brother Eric defeated Valdemar in the Battle of Hilva in 1275, which we covered in our last episode. The arrest and overthrow of King Valdemar after the Battle of Hoover was the culmination of several years of fighting between the brothers that had been going on since their father's death in 1266. For Magnus's part, it seems to have been mainly rooted in the fact that he didn't get as much power in his new role as Duke, the title that his uh, father had recently taken, as he would have liked. He was expecting to be at least the main supporter of the king, or at best the power behind the throne, but this didn't happen at all. Instead, he seemed to be relatively sidelined. But again, we covered this brotherly fighting back in Valdemar's episode, so we're not going to go through it all again now. Instead, let's pick up where we left off in the last episode at the end of the year 1275. After the battle, Magnus took the crown, but Valdemar wasn't actually killed. He's very much still around. In fact, he was released after his relatively brief arrest and given Jörterland in the southwest of Sweden to rule over, perhaps as a bribe to keep him quiet, easier than this than having to kill him or exile him. This means that whilst Magnus is now king, he's not really ruling the entire kingdom as such. Valdemar is still around, still in Sweden, and actually ruling directly over a piece of the land, meaning there's no real peace between the two brothers. Essentially, the rule of Sweden is split, with Valdemar ruling in the west from his stronghold in Lerdesa, and Magnus ruling over in the east, in a sort of brief stalemate and truce. Despite this split, Magnus is trying to do everything he can to be seen as the real king of the whole country and emphasise his legitimacy, despite the fact that the previous king is still alive and kicking, albeit removed from the throne. 
Magnus had fought against his older brother together with his younger brother, Erik, and the plan was that now Magnus was king, Erik was going to be his duke and right-hand man. But Erik seems to have been of poor health and dies in December the same year, 1275. That's a shame, but also makes the kingdom slightly more manageable in the sense that one powerful brother is out of the picture, even if he was the sort of third wheel on this caravan of chaos. Exactly. And uh, taking a brief pause to look at the rest of the family, in terms of Valdemar and Magnus' other siblings, Sister Rakissa is on to her second marriage by now. Previously Queen of Norway, she's now Princess of Verla, having married Henry, Prince of Verla, back in 1262. They have three children, and Rakissa is now effectively out of the picture down in Germany. Sister Christina is married to a Swedish powerful local politician and lord, but seems to have stayed out of the fighting, at least enough to not really be mentioned in any of the sources talking about the war between her brothers. Sister Katerina, of course, is married to the excellently named Prince of Anhalt Zerbst, and their final sister, Ingeborg, has been married to a duke down in Saxony for about five years or so, and is really part of this extension of Sweden or Birger's family connections down to Germany, and this is now, of course, extended to Magnus, now he's king. Their final sibling, Brother Bengt, is still relatively young at this point, he's about 22. Okay, so that's where we're at when the new year 1276 starts. Valdemar, whilst no longer recognised as king of Sweden, he is still holding out in the west of the country as a local ruler. He's even trying to assert his power by initiating his own treaties with Germany and marrying off his oldest daughter to become Countess of Holstein Plön down in the Danish-German border region. But that's not going to work with the rest of the political elite because his brother is busy consolidating his power and making sure he is seen as the true king, despite Valdemar insisting he is a force to be reckoned with out west. Magnus is really on the political offensive now, trying to make sure that he gets all the power and gets rid of his brother once and for all. Mainly, he works hard on getting the church on his side, because as we've seen time and time again, the church is a very important player in politics in the Middle Ages, and having them on your side can make it or break it for a king. As we saw in his episode, Valdemar had fallen out of favour with the church, uh, mostly due to his sex scandal with a runaway nun, so that must have worked in Magnus's favour, you'd think. Yeah, you think that would be his first sentence when talking to the church is, I'm not my brother, <laughs> remember that? <laughs> I've never had sex with a runaway nun. <laughs> exactly. And a sign that Magnus is receiving support from the church and that all of Sweden's bishops have accepted him as king is the fact that he's officially crowned in Uppsala Cathedral on the 24th of May, 1276. So that's a check in one very big political box. Just over a month later, on the 26th of June, 
1276, Valdemar and Magnus meet to try and settle their differences and bring peace to the country. So it's not actually taken very long for them to come together and try and talk things out. And this meeting has actually been instigated by Magnus VI of Norway. Norway naturally doesn't want the fighting to spread anywhere, and they want their merchants and visitors to be safe when visiting their southern neighbours. However, this meeting, despite the good intentions, leads nowhere, and the two brothers leave without accomplishing anything, and the fighting, at least political fighting, continues. In fact, the whole thing will get worse before it gets better. In the autumn of 1276, Magnus and his people raid the Danish territories of Skeona and Halland. Now, this might seem a bit odd that King Magnus is raiding Denmark because, remember in the last episode, the Danish king, Erik Klipping, actually supported Magnus in his fight against Valdemar and gave him a hundred men to add to his army. So why is Magnus now raiding in Denmark? Well, the Danes seem to now have switched sides and are supporting Valdemar in an alliance that seemed to have been partly arranged by Valdemar's Danish wife, Sophia. The main reason for the Danes switching side, however, seemed to have been that the Danish king was angry that Magnus had still not paid him back the 6,000 silver marks he had promised the year before as payment for those 100 men he got from Denmark, when he took the Swedish throne. Many people throughout life have debts to pay at various points, but Magnus certainly lets it overflow to the point of stupidity. He said, just, just pay the Danish king back. It's a messy time these years in the mid-1270s, and alliances seem to be made and broken at the blink of an eye. After Magnus has raided in these Danish territories, the Danes, understandably, don't just sit there and do nothing. They, with their king, Eric Clipping, join with Valdemar and retaliate by raiding in Smallland a few months later, in the winter of 1277. This is quite a dramatic move when you think about it. The Danish king is joining forces with a dethroned Swedish king to invade the south of Sweden, or at least go in and kick over a few houses and uh, cause some mischief. They actually meet with little resistance in Smallland, and so they keep going, and they get all the way up to Vestigertland before an army, or an army in quote marks, of 200 Swedish men loyal to Magnus decide to try and put up a bit of a proper fight. This is very small-scale stuff, though, isn't it? Just 200 men turning up, and it's called a battle. Well, regardless, this results in an all-out battle at Etak, east of the modern-day town of Falköping, around Easter 1277. Or, not really a battle, it sounds more uh, like a Swedish sneak attack, to be honest. It's quite easy to picture the scene from the sources we've read. Tired Danish soldiers having a bit of a rest in Swedish Västergötland when they start to have some food lunch, breakfast or dinner, we're not quite sure. And then you can imagine Morten, the Danish soldier, getting ready to snack on some tasty Danish bacon. 
All of a sudden, Magnus's 200 Swedish men burst out of nowhere and catch them as they're eating, uh, with little time to prepare a proper defense. The Swedes defeat the Danes and turf them out of Sweden. And the Danes withdraw, but the victory for Sweden and the relative calm afterwards won't last for very long. The Danes return with Valdemar at the end of 1277 and raid Investigatland again. Maybe they're heading back for the bacon they left behind last time when they uh, <laughs> retreated earlier in the same year. But we're not quite sure how these raids end this time around, but the Danes must have felt that they got their revenge for the initial Swedish attacks on Halland and Skorna, and they agree to negotiate a cessation of hostilities. Peace negotiations take place in the town of Laholm, then Denmark, now Sweden, over the winter of 1277-1278. The result is that the amount of money that Magnus owes to the Danish king is reduced to 4,000 silver marks. So he gets a bit of a reduction, but not much else. They're still calling in the debt. Oh, wow, that's a lot of fighting for just a discount of 2,000 silver marks. Uh, can't help feeling that that all felt a bit unnecessary. But anyway, this was why we said in the previous episode that whilst it might not have seemed important at the time, those 6,000 marks of silver in return for 100 men to fight, well, they really come back to haunt Magnus. They certainly did, and it reminds me of my favourite trash TV show back in the UK called Can't Pay, We'll Take It Away. <laughs> or in this case, Can't Pay, We'll Raid You. <laughs> exactly, Can't Pay, We'll Raid You Away. <laughs> anyway, if it wasn't enough that the Danes were getting involved with this raiding and fighting all over southern Sweden, Valdemar also tries to get some support from Germany for his little campaign of revenge. He even went as far as promising the leaders of Brandenburg that they would get the island of Gotland if they supported him in the fight against his brother. Valdemar's wife Sophia seems to be involved again as she co-signs the document promising the Germans the island. But alas, this was to no avail because Magnus had made sure he got to the Germans first and his promise of continuing the good trade relations between the two areas made sure that the Germans didn't get involved in the two brothers' fight for the crown. Although you could say they are getting involved, but they're, they're actively mm. not choosing sides rather than actively choosing a side. And when Valdemar realises he can't get this support, eventually the brothers agree a more permanent truce. At a meeting in Hrenega, we're not sure entirely when, either the end of 1277 or the beginning of 1278, Magnus agreed to give his brother the title Quandam Rex, which is Latin for previous king. And he gave him a bit of land and the right to keep residing at Lerdusa. This seems to have placated Valdemar a bit and meant he stopped fighting Magnus for the crown. So is... All the fighting finally over for Magnus now? Can he get on with actually being king? Well, not really. Because no sooner has his brothers calmed down a bit than he gets whacked with an uprising from his own noblemen. We don't know what caused these noblemen to rise up and fight Magnus, but we know that because of all the years fighting his brother, Magnus has bribed so many people, both home and abroad, that Sweden is nearly bankrupt. 
So perhaps the noblemen were worried by the state of the kingdom and its finances, and therefore saw Magnus as unfit to rule, or perhaps he'd borrowed money from them and won't pay it back, because after all that seems to be his tactic, is borrow money that he can't afford to pay back. So maybe they're angry and they want their money back. We know that the uprising started around the town of Skara in Vestiatland, where the powerful bishop resides and was a hub for religious activities back in that day and is still a big religious Mm -hmm. town in Sweden. This revolt was led by, among others, the nobleman Johan Philipson of the Aspenes family. The rebels seem to have had the initial upper hand, and among other things, they captured Magnus's father-in-law and killed his counsellor in this initial uprising in 1278. And the fighting rages back and forwards for over two years until the summer of 1280. According to Erikskrönikan, the Erik Chronicle, Magnus first agreed to a ceasefire and then invited the rebellious noblemen to a meeting at Jelkvist, a place close to Skara. What happens there is like something straight out of his father's playbook. Because remember, Birjajal showed no mercy towards his enemies. And neither would, as it turned out, his son Magnus. Having lured the noblemen into a false sense of security by agreeing to a ceasefire and a meeting, he then proceeds to capture them when they arrive at the meeting, and towards the end of the summer of 1280, he brings three of their leading figures to Stockholm, where they're executed. Rebellion over. (laughs) Yeah, that's how you put down a rebellion. Although he's very sneaky again, this is definitely a very Buryajal-y type of move. Remember, his father, Buryajal, did that to rebellious Falkunger factions of noblemen back in 1251, and uh, he did the exact same thing. Lure them in with a fake ceasefire and then attack them. So Magnus has definitely been studying his father's playbook, as he said. There's no honour and no playing by the rules here. Uh, It might have been a dirty trick, but it does pay off for Magnus. After this firm, if not to say violent, repression... And sneaky. Yeah, let's not forget sneaky. Repression of the rebellious noblemen, he has, for all intents and purposes put a stop to the fighting and general turmoil in the Swedish kingdom. This brutal end to the insurrection doesn't just deal with the rebellious noblemen, it also ends the fight with Valdemar. Again, originally seeing an opportunity to use these disgruntled nobles to help him retake the throne, Valdemar had been aligned with them to try and destabilize Magnus, But after their defeat, and perhaps after seeing the serious extent of the violence that Magnus is capable of, Valdemar gives up, packs up his things, and leaves everything, including his wife and his properties in western Sweden, and moves to Denmark in 1280. So he bids farewell to Sweden entirely. Hey do. Hey do. (laughs) And this is... Fair enough, because he might have realised by now that he's 
probably next on his brother's list of violent revenges and reprisals. And this also meant that Magnus really now was the undisputed king of all areas of Sweden, not just the east. And to celebrate, he gave himself the additional title Rex Gothorum, King of the Goths, starting the tradition that the Swedish king would be called the King of the Swedes and the Goths, something that remained a thing until the current king of Sweden decided to be called just King of Sweden when he took the throne in 1973. So this tradition of calling yourself the King of the Swedes and the Goths lasted almost exactly 700 years. That is very cool. Just one thing before we move on with the rest of Magnus's reign. When you describe what the rebelling noblemen did, you said they captured Magnus's father-in-law. If he has a father-in-law, then surely that means that he now has a wife. It sure does, and she was actually almost captured along with her father back in the rebellion, only escaping into a convent to avoid the enemy forces. Now, we should say a few words about her before moving on, because in the midst of all this fighting with his brother and dealing with rebelling noblemen, Magnus indeed finds the time to get married. Really? Wow. This man's diary must have looked weird. Monday, fight my brother. Tuesday, subdue rebellion. Wednesday, get married. Thursday, execute rebel leader. Friday, fight my brother some more. Saturday, um, eat captured Danish bacon. <laughs> yeah. Sunday, hang out with my new wife. It's a very weird life. Yeah, and um, that schedule might not be too far from the truth because he gets married on the 11th of November, 1276. So that's the same autumn that he does raid Skorna and Halland in the fight with the Danish king. However, on that day, he takes a break from the fighting long enough to get married at Kalmar Castle. And he marries none other than Princess Helvig of Holstein. And we've mentioned Holstein before in the podcast and even uh, earlier in this episode when we talked about King Valdemar's daughter. It's a region on the border between modern-day Denmark and Germany and it's always changing hands. But they're important people to get in with if you're involved in the Scandinavian peninsula. Again, it's as is so often the case when we look back in history, we don't know what the personal feelings between Magnus and Helvig were, but we know that creating an alliance with Holstein made absolute sense for Magnus and for Sweden, not least because that way he could make sure that Holstein didn't join forces with Denmark and gang up on Sweden. As we've seen, Magnus isn't very pally with the Danish king, so anything to make sure Denmark doesn't get any favours or new allies is obviously a good deal for Magnus. So as we enter into the 1280s, Magnus is married, uh, he's gotten rid of his troublesome older brother, he's dealt with the angry Danes, and he's subdued the noblemen that were rebelling against him. It's no exaggeration to say that he had a difficult first few years, but he's now properly in power and the crown is resting firmly on his head. He's probably taped it on so no one can <laughs> rip it off him. Lots of tape keeping this crown firmly on his head. And when you think about it, he's probably done more fighting than most of the Swedish kings before him. He's been fighting for all of his reign, effectively. But now he can get on with doing the other things that kings do, and specifically the things that he will be known for later on in history. First up is something called the Ordinance of Alsner, 
named after Alsner Hus, a palace located on the island of Alderser in Lake Melloran. And in fact, the island of Alderser is actually the island where Birka, that great Viking age town and trading point, was located. However, only the ruins of Alsner Hus remain today, but the whole site and the whole island, including the remains of Birka, is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site, so you can visit that all year round if you like. The Ordinance of Alsnö, or Alsnö Stadga, as it's called in Swedish, is a set of rules and regulations concerning the privileges and the responsibilities of the nobility. It is a much studied and much debated historical document that will have a profound impact on Swedish societal structure for centuries to come. Unfortunately, the original document hasn't survived to the modern day. We only have two copies that were written in the 14th century left. Ah, that's better than most documents from the 1200s. <laughs> True. Because the original hasn't survived, historians have struggled to date when Orsna Stadga was actually written. But most conclude that it was written in 1280, but some have argued it could have been as late as 1285. That's pretty good, though, for dating. It's quite a, quite a short time range. Mm -hmm. And whichever date of those it is, it's still in Magnus's reign. And it takes the form of an open letter from King Magnus, and it looks like it was written in connection with a meeting between the king and the members of the nobility. We've talked a lot about the nobility in several episodes by now, mainly because they keep rising up and trying to kill the king. But the fact of the matter is that the nobility hasn't really been a defined group until now. Some of them have supported the kings, some of them have fought against the king, like the Falkunga rebels, and some have been more related to the church. In many ways, it's the Alsnastagda that will define the nobility from now. Up until now, Sweden have had stormen, which literally translates to English as great or large men, and this has been an undefined group of vaguely powerful people who have been made powerful by a combination of traditions, their family heritage, their wealth, the amount of land they owned and controlled, and their influence in their local area or how good they were at fighting battles. They didn't tend to have titles, as there isn't a tradition of barons, dukes and earls that other countries such as England have had for centuries by now. It's an informal power structure, and it was this informal power structure that will now start to form the basis of a more defined nobility going forwards. Olsnostadgat consists of four parts, or articles. Article 1 concerns gestning, a practice that doesn't really have a good English translation. Basically, what it is, is a practice that says that anyone who is traveling can stay at any farm or in any house that they pass. Uh, so if you're a farmer and someone knocks on your door and says, Hi, I'm traveling from Stockholm to Uppsala and I need to sleep here tonight and feed my horses and have dinner with you. Uh, then you have no option but to care for that person and his mates and their horses and whatever else they're bringing. 
yeah, it could get quite expensive. Um, if you're familiar with ancient history, this is quite similar to the ancient Greek principle of xenia, or guest friendship. This is the Swedish version of xenia, this yesning, and unfortunately it was often abused, and the poor farmers living on the routes and the roads where everybody was travelling were drained by this need to care for all these travellers. Article 1 of Ausnestagda regulates that each herad, which is a defined local area, is to have an assigned person that guides travellers to which farm they should stay at that night, and the farmer is to receive financial compensation for the guest. So that's good for the farmers. Even though they are still by law not allowed to refuse anyone to stay, it's a bit more regulated and they're guaranteed to get some financial compensation. Only the king himself and bishops may refuse travellers to stop and stay with them. Of course the king had to have a get-out clause. Uh, would have been a bit funny if a random farmer from Nerke walked past the king's palace and asked to stay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that would be um, a burden on the king. You'd imagine everyone would want to stay with him. Yeah. Uh, so that's Article 1. Article 2 is really just a confirmation of a set of laws that have existed since Bilyoyal. In our two episodes about medieval law and order, episodes 35 and 36, we talked about the peace laws, national laws that served to protect certain spaces, people and periods of time. It's an aspect of these peace laws that are confirmed in Article 2 of Osna Stadga, in particular that the punishment for murdering someone on their farm or on someone else's farm is to be outlawed and for the state to be allowed to confiscate the property of the murderer and split it between the victim, the king and the local community. Yeah, well, that's one way of uh, sorting out the punishment. Article 3 is really what Alsnastagger is famous for, because this is the article that concerns the nobility. In Swedish, they are now going to be referred to as the Verdslikt Frestler, meaning earthly redeemed, and this is opposed to members of the church, who are now referred to as Andlik Frestler, meaning spiritually redeemed. These terms might sound a bit odd and slightly mythical, especially when translated to English, but it's actually saying something about those it refers to. People who belonged to the Verslitfrestler, i.e. the nobility, were redeemed or freed from certain things here on earth. And in medieval times in Sweden, what they were freed from was tax. Oh, good for them. Considering we're in Sweden, where we have uh, pretty high taxes, that's quite something. Especially when these people were the people who actually had money to pay taxes, unlike the poor farmer from Nerke. Yeah, it really is, and it sets these nobles aside from other farmers, landowners and labourers who all pay tax to the crown. Members of the nobility are now exempt from tax. And that's not just tax in the form of paying money to the crown and state. Perhaps most importantly in this period of history, it means that their farms, their forests, their waters, their lakes and their lands don't need to pay part of their yield to the crown. So if they make 20 onions in their farm, they don't give any to the crown, whereas all the others give a certain percentage. 
But they don't just get this huge benefit of not paying tax for nothing. They actually need to do something in return. And what they need to do is serve the king. Exactly how it isn't stated in Ars Nostagda. Historians believe that it wasn't stated because everybody knew what it meant. Because after all, this is follow-up from a meeting that they've had. So they probably mentioned it in the meeting and he said, I'll send round the minutes in this letter and we all know what we talked about because we were all there. And you got a bit angry about it. And by exempting the nobility from tax, the king is tying these powerful noblemen to him. He's basically saying that they're indebted to him. And being indebted is something that Magnus knows a lot about. (laughs) So uh, it's good for him. Considering how much trouble both Magnus and his dad had had with rebellious noblemen, it's easy to imagine why he thought this was a good thing, to put into practice a system that meant the noblemen were indebted to him rather than just vaguely obedient to him. There is one more, more practical aspect of this consolidation of the nobility and this tying them to the crown and serving the king. The members of the nobility all had a horse, perhaps they had more, but now they promised they would keep this horse, or a horse, ready for the king to use, along with providing a trained knight for the king to command in battle. The horses, together with the trained knights to fight from them, is important to the king. It means that he has an army ready to hand and that he doesn't have to raise one every time he goes off to fight. And this is a big difference because this is what the Swedish kings have had to do up until this point. Every time the Danes have arrived, they said, oh, oh, damn, Um, everybody, quick, grab some swords and whatever you have. I don't care who you are. Sven, quick, pick up that sword and come. Like, we're going to go and fight. And regardless of who Sven was, how good he was at battle or anything, they turn up. And that's why we've seen sometimes when, you know, the Danish use their heavy cavalry and massacre an effective peasant army of Swedes is because... Because these effective nobodies are just given a sword and put into battle. Yeah, so this practice with the nobility and the knight and a horse is the first step to a standing national army in Sweden. But to some extent, they still have to raise an army every time they go off to fight because these horses and knights are not enough to constitute a useful force. Uh, But it means the king has access to the basis for an army and, importantly, access to the most expensive and the best trained aspects of an army. This will have a huge impact on how the medieval royal power develops, especially when it comes to tying the military might to the crown. And in many ways, this is Sweden catching up with a lot of other Mm. countries around Europe at this point who've had formalized systems in some way related to this principle of providing knights to the crown for centuries at this point. And this is why Article 3 of Asnastagda has gone down in history as the most important part of these meetings. But we should still mention the fourth and final article in the ordinance that made it illegal for local noblemen or vassals to independently tax the farms and the people of their local area outside of what had been officially agreed on. 
And again, this can be seen as yet another step to tie local power to the crown and create a homogenous way of ruling the kingdom, a process that's been going on in Sweden for the last couple of kings' reigns by now, and something that Magnus seemed to continue. So in practice, this means that if me and Orsa living in Stockholm are taxed by the king, the local lord of Stockholm can't come round and say, oh, five gold pieces every month, please. This is your local tax. It's stopping the nobleman from doing that. When you study Swedish history, you often come across the statement that Olsna Stadga created the nobility. It created this separate class in society. I certainly remember being taught that in school. And it is perhaps more relevant in Sweden today than in some other parts of Europe, since we still have a nobility. And from time to time, you run into people who come from noble families. But perhaps saying that it was Osna Stadga that created the nobility as a separate class might be a bit of an oversimplification. The group of people that became the nobility had existed before. They were powerful and rich before their privileges were stated on a piece of paper. And they didn't get the wealth and importance they came to have right away. That also grew over time. Throughout the Middle Ages and into the 15, 16, 17 and even 1800s, the role of the nobility will grow and develop and we will cover that as we journey through Swedish history. What Osna Stadga definitely did was to formalize what the nobility was and tie it to royal power. And again, considering the rebellion that Magnus had just faced from a group of these noblemen, he might have thought more about the short-term gains in terms of creating this system rather than the long-term societal structure it was starting to create. But now, Magnus has created this foundation, both for the future of the nobility and also for his own reign. And this is probably a decent enough place to take a break here in 1280, as Valdemar's ship disappears over the horizon and heads to Denmark, leaving Magnus busy implementing the Alsnastaka. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I want a break too after all that. So I'm sure Magnus probably deserves a break uh, around here too. Uh, we'll return to his story next time and see what happens in Sweden. Now we have a king who has seemingly dispatched all his enemies, foreign, familial and domestic, and has instituted a system of rules to control and also reward the burgeoning nobility across the country. Indeed, it's going to be very fun, but before we say goodbye, we're going to say thank you to BrookieCookie606, who has left a lovely five-star review on Apple Podcasts called Yetabra, or really great, or really good in Swedish. And it says, very informative and engaging podcast. The hosts are entertaining, and I've learned many things that no world history class here in America has ever taught me. And as a learner of the Swedish language, the Swedish phrases at the beginning of each episode help me to learn more slang and idioms. Would definitely recommend to any history buffs, language learners, or general podcast listeners. Smiley face. And smiley face back to you, Brookie Cookie. Yes, thank you, Brookie Cookie 606. And we will see you all again next time when we continue Magnus's story. 
Until then, there are new family trees up on our website and social media, so you can keep track on Magnus's wife and what is happening to his siblings and everything else that's going on. So that just leaves us time to say goodbye. Hej då!